Welcome to the Beer Sec Ops Podcast. Yeah, I said beer. Some had to go to make room for beer, and it wasn't going to be sec, was it? And now we need those ops guys, so sorry, Dev. Beer Sec Ops, who will be having conversations with cybersecurity industry influencers and frontline DevOps warriors to help provide us with a cloud-native security blanket. To those who are treading lightly into our hazy DevSecOps world of rainbow chundering unicorns. Hello, hello. I'm your host, Steve Jaguer. This is Beer Sec Ops, and in this episode, we have a very special guest. It's Kelsey Hightower. Kelsey, you probably already know who he is, does not need much of an introduction, um, was doing a podcast tour over a few weeks in November and December. I think he did 20 podcasts, and I was lucky enough to get him. I think it was number 20. And that's that's kind of a, a blessing and a bit of a curse because I'd listened to some of the podcasts he'd already done. And when I started to ask questions, he was so well practiced at answering them that I felt I was getting answers I'd heard before, or maybe not, not necessarily stock answers, but ones where he was so familiar that he didn't really have to stretch that much to answer them. And so I really had to engage my brain and get a little bit left of center to try and get him out of that uh, that comfort zone. And hopefully I managed to achieve that. Um, If you're a fan of Kelsey, and, and so am I, you know that he has a very holistic approach to technology. He likes to kind of take it up a notch, take it up a level. And think about the future in a way that a lot of us, um, when we're we're knee deep in it, don't really get a chance to do. So here we go, Kelsey Hightower. All right. Uh, I guess we're started. Uh, normally, I talk to you in advance just to make sure that you haven't got some amazing new thing. But you must be you must be talked out. No, what I'm finding is every host just asks a different set of questions a different way, and that just tends to extract a different set of analogies. Uh, yeah, I, can, I guess now I'm learning that I can talk about this stuff forever. <laughs> you scared me a little bit because I, as you came online, I saw a tweet that said you were you were closing the podcast floodgates, and I thought, wait, am I, which side of the gate am I on here? Oh no, you're definitely if you're scheduled, I'm doing it. All right, that is awesome. So let me begin then by saying, how's the tour been? Uh, has it been enlightening? Uh, I think I saw you tweet something about how you're learning a lot about yourself. Yeah, I think it's fairly enlightening. I think it's uh, just reflecting back because some of the podcasts were more about managing people and not necessarily the technology. Uh, some people just got into Kelsey the person outside of some of the technical bits. Uh, so then having to think of answers and, you know, hopefully you give it like these deep answers that you can't really do on a keynote stage. Uh, I find that interesting. And also, like when you write a blog post, there's no one there to bounce off of. So you tend to just try to write this perfect set of paragraphs, whereas on the podcast, it's so much more organic, and you're just kind of within the moment, and I think there's a bit more authenticity that gets dragged out. So you've enjoyed it? Oh, I've, I've been enjoying it greatly. Very cool. Very cool. Okay, excellent. So I don't know if you had a, a plan in the way you wanted to start. I was thinking of uh, introducing or you introducing yourself, but I think that's happened several times. I've been... I've been doing my, my homework, Kelsey, because I've been listening. I probably listened to all of the ones that have been released already. Oh, that's Which, dope. for better or for worse, has... What did you say? I said, that's dope, because, you know, I don't want to introduce myself. If you have something else you want to do, that'd be great with me. Okay. I'm going to start a little um, off-piste and, and just ask, what do you do for fun that is outside of the uh, 
the Kubernetes and cloud native and the keynotes. Um, what do you do to relax? Uh, there's, gonna... Yeah, there's three things I do to kind of relax or to have fun. One would be uh, on Saturdays, my family lets me just do this mystery day. They get in the car and I plan the day out. So I may do something like mini golf in the morning, a nice lunch somewhere, and then go find a new trail for us to walk on and maybe catch a movie. So they don't know where I'm going to go. They just get in the car and they just trust me to make a day out of it. So usually if it's a good day, we don't get back home until the evening. So everyone kind of looks forward to this myst- you know, mystical Saturday uh, that dad's going to cook up. That's one thing I like to do with the family. The other one awesome. is uh, I like playing Magic the Gathering. Uh, I was oh, really? <laughs> yeah, like I never played in middle school, never played in high school. And when I was working at Puppet Labs, they taught me how to play Magic the Gathering for a tournament we were going to have. So I'm like brand new, my first weekend, and I make it to the finals in the office. People are just like, what the hell? You just learned how to play. <laughs> and ever since then, I'm kind of like this pool shark for Magic the Gathering. I'll go to these, um, you know, the gaming stores. And I don't look like a person that plays Magic. And I'll just sit down and just ask people, what are the rules? Can I do this? Can I do that? And then my final question I like to ask is, so do I win now when I play that final card that just takes them down to zero life? Oh, my goodness. You're a, you're a card shark, but a different kind of card shark. There you go. So I really enjoy the game and just the different personas that game allows me to take. So I really like playing Magic the Gathering like when I have some downtime. Cool. You said three things. Is that... Oh, the third one, honestly, is uh, nothing. Uh, <laughs> Okay. Yeah, so this, I kind of left it out there. You didn't catch it. But the third thing is, like, when I get home, I like to actually clean up. It's, it's, it's hilarious. So my house is typically empty. I work from home. And wife and daughter are typically gone. My wife, uh, the vice principal in the school district, and my daughter plays lots of sports, a lot of after-school activities. So that means the house is just mine. So I like to keep it spotless. And then I just like to sit and do nothing and kind of reflect back on all the other stuff that keeps me busy. Okay. Nice. Do you do things like meditating or well-being related activities? I read about those things. <laughs> ah, nice. So I, I definitely read about them. But what I like to do is kind of take some of those elements. Like when I clean, I like to do it very patiently and just nice and slow as I kind of like respect the things that I have. So I guess it's part of being uh, a minimalist, right? Like I have very few things that are mine. But the little things that I do have, I really appreciate them. I, pres- I appreciate their position in my life and that kind of thing. So I guess that's a form of meditation where, you know, maybe my eyes aren't closed and I'm not zoned out, but I do kind of hyper-focus in on the thing that I'm doing uh, just to let the rest of the world disappear behind me. Nice. Yeah, I can relate to that. That's cool. I guess for some reason I had this vision of you having a sort of Mark Wahlberg style day. I don't know if you are familiar. <laughs> he, he published this insane thing where he, he works out for, he gets up at 2.30 a.m. and has this mad uh, unbelievably high-performing, strange day uh, of, of working out largely and eating snacks. No, no, that that's not me. <laughs> okay, good. So, uh, switching gears onto the technical side, uh, which is kind of why you're, you're going through, and, and you said you had so many things to say about the future of Kubernetes, and uh, I've listened to some of that already, and there's a little bit of a panic about how there will be a future with potentially no Kubernetes, and... Uh, that uh, that maybe has left people a little unsettled. Is that true or not true? Yeah, I think a lot of times, wherever you link your identity to, like some people, if you look at their HR title, they're a Linux system administrator. 
And if you were to tell that person, well, Linux is going to go away, they might have a few words to say about that. So when I talk about Kubernetes, it's new, it has all the buzz, it's hyped up. You have people now, I actually looked on LinkedIn, there are some people who are Kubernetes, like administrators or senior Kubernetes XYZ. And at that point, once you start to really lock in your identity to this layer, uh, if, if someone said it's going to go away, then you may ask the question, so what will I do if it goes away? And what I like to tell those people is that there was something you were doing before Kubernetes, and there's definitely something you're going to be doing after Kubernetes. So what does after Kubernetes look like? I think for a lot of people, this idea that we will do a bunch of cluster management, and I think there will still always be people who will manage a cluster so others don't have to. And when the whole organization isn't managing the cluster, there's a whole bunch of work that can be done on top of Kubernetes. One of them is building new platforms or leveraging Kubernetes data elements for building things like autoscalers or, you know, CICD integration and those kind of things. Are you touching on, so when you say things like that, I think of uh, platforms like, like Rancher and maybe I was reading about, I was, I was looking into Azure Arc and to see if things like layers on top were, were is that the sort of direction you're going? So I think that's close because what those tools do, they're almost like a configuration management layer for Kubernetes. So they still keep Kubernetes front and center for the most part. Mm. They give you mm. tools to think about multiple clusters and, you know, think about the configuration of those clusters. So that's definitely a powerful tool that anyone managing multiple Kubernetes clusters should probably be thinking about. But what I'm talking about is where people don't even know that those things exist. If you think about, so let's think about when I'm a developer. If I'm building an application, my workflow kind of looks like get it to work on my machine, write some integration tests, some unit tests, check it in. And over time, there should be a happy path to get that application to the right environment. If that happy path is set up well, I might interact maybe a little bit more closely with my CI/CD system if something breaks. I can go in there and troubleshoot it, see why it turned red or why something failed to deploy and, and go back through my development loop to fix it. But largely, everything below the CI/CD line will disappear. And that's the, I think, the holy grail that we're all after. Regardless if we use Kubernetes to be that last mile layer or just Linux VMs, I think that's kind of the goal that we've always had. So you're putting a new layer on top. So if I were to project this backwards, I mean, we in, in every part of our development history, we started off by running assembly that was meant to directly run onto hardware. And then we abstracted away that into uh, structured programming languages. Is that, am I, going, am I going in the right direction yet in reverse and just suggesting that we will abstract away from this and it will become ubiquitous where we're not thinking about it so hard. I think that's exactly the right way to look at it. And then, you know, there won't be, there won't be one path, right? We have multiple programming languages to match the style and right. purpose of the tool. And I think that's the piece where we like to say Kubernetes is a platform for building platforms. And we'll have lots of those, just like in the assembler analogy, there'll be many programming languages. There'll be many platforms that sit on top of Kubernetes. So is this way of thinking, I mean, you got, you dove into serverless for a while and you, you kind of come out the other side. Is that what prompted this style of thinking? No, I think two or three years ago, I kind of came to the conclusion personally that yes, Kubernetes did a great job of really helping us decouple our apps from the machine. We're allowing Kubernetes to make some of the decisions on where things should run based on our descriptions, based on our policies. But I'm sitting there like, this cannot be the end. Like there's no way... 
that we the mission now is just to teach everyone Kubernetes and we, we're done with it, right? The same was true for Linux. You know, we just don't give people SSH and call it done. So when we start to look at like what comes after Kubernetes, right? I think it's a healthy exercise in order to appreciate what Kubernetes is currently doing and what can be built on top of it. So serverless to me is this idea, this promise that we can take what most people associate with pain, the servers, the patching, the upgrades, and build a layer, whether that's an API or another set of abstractions, where we can actually get things done using some of those serverless principles. Okay. So let me take, I, I'm going to take a step back before I take another step forward here. And um, so I come from a, well, I come from a security vendor, a security background generally, right? So whenever I start to hear more about what, what's the next layer, I kind of take a step back and think, well, how do we secure the previous one? Or did we even really do a good job of it? I mean, is there a potential concept of a ubiquitous secure Kubernetes? Is that, uh, is that something that's worth thinking about? Or I'm, I'm going to ask you about it anyway. Yeah. So I think when it comes to the security piece, a lot of times it's going to be, you know, disabling the features you don't use, educating yourself about features are there. And that's maybe on the app side. On the Kubernetes side, that's a pretty big API surface. If you compromise a Kubernetes API, you can get R back and all these other things, then you have the opportunity to compromise the entire server. So I think as an industry and the project itself, it's got to put more security controls in place, and we've been doing that over the years. But a lot of people are just spinning up these Kubernetes clusters with the defaults in play. And anyone that's been checking out some of their big conferences like KubeCon, there are lots of talks about why just going to production with the default is not the best idea. And now we're on this journey of educating people. Kubernetes has lots of knobs that you can turn towards the direction of security. Now we have to teach people what those trade-offs are. We don't want to be too restrictive where you can't run the apps you need. But at the same time, we don't want to be running with the defaults and end up mining Bitcoins for other people. <laughs> yeah, it's a popular outcome. So you come from a sysadmin background. That is actually almost a self-taught background. And where I was going from that is, did you were you a part of hardening of servers such that when you saw Kubernetes taking over, did you put on a security hat of one of your many thousand hats? I would say as a system administrator, I didn't know enough to really understand what I was doing when it came to security, just being point blank honest. Okay. What most people were doing, especially me at that time, maybe seven, eight years ago, I was just following the best practices guys that I could find, right? How to lock down Red Hat Enterprise Linux. And, you know, you would find things like, hey, turn on SE Linux. Uh, don't run this as root. Think about these things. And I think the biggest challenge for me was the big educational gap. I leaned very hard on the vendor to find the CVEs and I would just run yum, update, ensure everything was kind of patched, maybe close a few ports that didn't need to exist. And I can say I was probably doing the basics, but one thing that I really regret was learning some of the attack vectors, right? I think a lot of us try to harden these systems by following the best practices without understanding the attack vector. Because I think a lot of times some of the attack vectors change over time. So while you may be really good at the existing ways of hardening the system, if you don't understand the new attack vectors, for example, in containerization world, you can lock down that Kubernetes cluster, use seed groups, maybe even virtualize 
the apps instead of running on a shared kernel, right? You're doing a lot of good things at the below layer. But guess what? The attack vector for a lot of people are open source libraries, right? You find a great library online. Maybe there's a solo developer with great intentions. And they may not be paying attention to all of their dependencies that they're importing in order to give you their library. So no matter how much you lock down your system, you're offering almost a backdoor right there in memory if you're not paying attention to your application dependencies. Excellent. Yes, and I think that's that's something that as we move more and more to uh, having such wide dependency on open source, that's something that nearly needs to be on the front of, of people's brains as they're putting these systems together. And I like what you said about thinking about the attack vectors and almost thinking about abuse cases over use cases. Yeah, I wish I would understand much earlier in my career that it's really a practice versus an end goal. Like, if I apply all the patches and I read all the best practice guides, I'm not done. I'm just practicing up to that point. And if I would have thought of it as a practice, I think I would have did a little bit more research back then on, again, the attack vectors and how to deal with various compromises because I think that's a part of the security posture. Excellent. So... I've heard you talk about, and you mentioned analogies already, and I like analogies. They're always really, really effective for trying to explain new things to, to people. And um, the one I heard you mention was a Tetris analogy. I heard you refer to it, but I didn't hear you explain it. And I had an idea of what you meant, but if you don't mind, for my own benefit and for other people listening, to get, explain what that means. Yeah, so I was at Software Circus, a really nice tech conference in Amsterdam, probably about three or four years ago. And I remember making a deal with Adrian Krakroff. He's at Amazon, and he's very famous for like chaos engineering and some of the serverless stuff he's on. And we're sharing this ride, and we decided for our keynotes the next day, we're going to ditch all the slides. And I was like, well, if you're going to do it, I'm going to do it. And, and then I get to my hotel room, and it's like, oh, man, what are we going to do without these slides? And I was thinking of how do I explain, because Kubernetes is fairly new at the time, how do I explain this idea of the Kubernetes scheduling and what it's doing uh, to a bunch of people who may be new to this world? And so I decided to play a game of Tetris. So I have an emulator on my laptop, and I just use my keyboard and mouse to emulate a Nintendo controller. And what I tried to do was say, hey, look, if you think about Kubernetes, and in Kubernetes you can describe your workload, right? Memory and CPU. And the analogy there is that in the Kubernetes world, you're describing the shape of your workload. So different applications need different combination of CPU, memory, and storage. And I liken that to the Tetris blocks that are falling into the game. And most people have fixed amount of compute. So if you play the game of Tetris before, at the bottom, there's only so many rows of columns that you can stack your blocks. And the goal is to clear them once you kind of get a, a Tetris or a complete line of blocks. So the analogy fits well. The goal is workloads are always coming into the system, represented by the different shapes. And then the goal is to piece those shapes together in a way where they're not wasting space. Because in Tetris, if you waste a bunch of space and you go all the way to the top, then game over. And the same is true for a lot of people's infrastructure. And the nice thing about Tetris that really enforced the Kubernetes analogy is that when you're done with the set of rows, in Tetris, you clear them out to make room for the next set of things that are falling into the game world. And that's exactly how you can think about Kubernetes, especially if you're running cron jobs or batch jobs. When they're done, they go away and make room for the next set of applications. 
Excellent. I like that. I might even be able to explain this to my wife now. Or just play a game of Tetris and say, Kubernetes is like this. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's interesting. I've heard two versions of a Tetris analogy. And the other one um, was a little bit more like when we're talking about Kubernetes or or Linux or to be it chips or, or programming languages becoming ubiquitous where they're no longer the area that we are focusing on creating conferences for. And as something becomes ubiquitous, that is the layer that disappears. And then we start focusing on the new blocks of technology that are coming together, some fitting, some not. Yeah, if you think about this podcast, right, we can focus on this podcast because we didn't have to wire up the internet first. Um, (laughs) Exactly. Like, imagine that. So I think once you start to have a trans, like, there's a high bar to meet for infrastructure. When infrastructure becomes transparent, you know it's there. But you don't really think about it. It's like driving on the road. Most people don't really think about what it takes to maintain streets and highways. But we assume that they're there. We assume that they're working. And when they do, we can focus on getting to the destination. Excellent. That's a good pathway into my next question about when you you mentioned infrastructure. What I found fascinating about going from being, well, actually, I went from development to security. But the idea that containerization, Kubernetes, uh, and the merging of DevOps, and then our best efforts at what we're calling DevSecOps. The idea that silos of not just ops and dev are breaking down, but the idea of application security and information security and infrastructure security, those silos have been broken down as, as developers and DevOps have to contend with the idea that they are actually kind of responsible for their choices of lean container OS, and then adding the open source packages, as you alluded to, with vulnerabilities, and then making that work in an orchestration system that has a quite a wide attack surface. It's I found that quite a fascinating change over the past, oh gosh, what, 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 I don't know what you call it. I think you, start, you mentioned seven years. Um, do you think that's something that is... Well, it's one of the many challenges of, our, of, of the way we develop code at the moment. And, and abstracting away from that is something that you think will make us more secure. I, I, I feel like it will. I don't know, I've asked you about 10 questions in one sentence. There. So, so here's where I stand on this. I'm going to challenge the DevSecOps community for a second. Go for it. It's always good to have people work together. No one's going to ever argue against that. That was true a thousand years ago. Hopefully it'll be true a thousand years from now. The thing that's bad about silos is when there's no contract between them, right? For example, you actually like silos. At home, you probably don't interact with your internet service provider very often. You screw your cord into the wall and you assume the internet's going to be working. If you had to call them, if they had to come to your house, you would say, wow, this is very inefficient. We've been doing this so long, at some point you would think, I could just go buy a modem, screw it into the wall, and get online. And for me, that's been true for the last five years or so. So I think people do enjoy silos as long as the API between them is efficient and has a form of self-service and it doesn't feel like it gets in the way. Now let's apply that to infrastructure. Without API, so a lot of people have these hand-managed servers, they have these ideas about security, they have various policies, but there's no API. It's just that this person said that we're doing it this way, This person knows how to do it, and this person knows how to check it. So in those worlds, everything is up in the air. Something goes down, you got to find the right person. Uh, Something is broken or compromised, you have to find the right person. 
There is no API, there is no contract for anyone to discover anything on their own. So then we figure, all right, the solution there is to just push people closer together so we can shorten the distance between the communication. That's one approach. Another approach is to put APIs in between the expertise. If you have expertise at Kubernetes, you can work with your security team to lock that thing down and decide that this is the right configuration for my organization. And what we're going to do is expose the Kubernetes API above us. So that means if you just want to use the Kubernetes API, you don't have to learn about what it means to lock down a cluster completely. Now, I may have locked down that cluster to the point where you can't deploy your app. Then we can have a conversation. We can join the team together, whiteboard and decide what configuration we need. And once we come up with that decision, I'm going to put that into the platform and we can go back to our respective specializations. And I think Kubernetes is going to actually enable more people to specialize at their various layers, right? So I like to think specialization and not necessarily a silo, but having that API makes all the difference. Okay, excellent. I think we sort of are agreeing there. I hope so, because I've seen some people get real nervous about specialization in a way that uh, maybe a developer, if I hire a developer and I really want them to spend their best skill set developing the application and I want to protect them from dealing with so much infrastructure, then some people may see a problem with that, right? They may say, nope, I really want my developers kind of being responsible for parts of the infrastructure. And to me, it's like that's a big trade-off that you're asking someone with a high specialty to do. Same thing for ops, right? Ops is equally uh, as special purpose that if we took them off of that primary duty and ask them to write a bunch of the company's applications, then who's looking at the infrastructure? Okay, cool. So I want to, that was a good answer, and I didn't, I have nothing to add. Awesome. The, uh, you mentioned, now, and I, I, I'll be completely honest here, I'm not even sure what you mean. I think I heard you mention distributed monolith, and I have no idea what that means. Am I way out to lunch? If you could explain. Yeah, so let's get to that one. So Most people believe monoliths are bad, right? So this is an app. Let's say your app, you build this application using your favorite programming language, and it does one thing on day one. It takes ticket orders. But then you want to do something where you can actually do customer service, right? Maybe initiate a customer service flow. And since you already have this app, you add a new route called slash customer service. So at this point, this is the beginnings of the monolith. And then over 10 years, this thing is doing customer service, billing, promotions, ads, everything is in this one big deployable. Now, in addition to that, people start to co-mingle the code base. It's really hard to make a change without breaking what should be considered a whole entire different service. So then people get to thinking, you know what the problem is? It's not necessarily the way we write code. It's the way we package the deployable. So instead of having everything in one binary where all the interaction between them are nice and fast and predictable, what we're going to do is we're going to take that monolith and break it up into five or six or seven discrete components and throw it out there. So people go down this path now. They think that they have a collection of microservices. So I asked them, I said, hey, how do you test the customer service service independently? It's like, well, we can't. We need the... Uh, off piece, we need the ticketing system and we need the other pieces to all be deployed in order to test this single app. And I was like, wow, even though they're over a network, even though the binaries are smaller and you have more of them 
and you can do independent deployments of each of them, they're still so tightly coupled that you just basically built a distributed monolith. All you did was change the way you isolate code at deploy time or maybe even in your repository. And I think what people don't fail to understand is that you may not be any better off than you were before you chose to go that route. <laughs> so they've taken new technologies and uh, taken what they did before and kind of redeployed it without really taking advantage. Yeah, because what happens when you have a distributed monolith, you get so much networking chatter because all these pieces really do belong together. You, you didn't architect in the way where they can actually be separated in an efficient way. And now you start to get into heightened security problems. You start to get into performance issues and latency issues. Instead of going through a memory path, now you're maybe jumping over three or four networking links. And each of those links introduces a chance for failure, performance issues, or security boundaries. So I think there's a trade-off there that you have to ask yourself, are we really building a distributed monolith, right? In some cases you are, but you, then you have to ask yourself, what problem are we trying to solve? Are we trying to solve the way our code dependencies interact with each other? Because there's a way to separate your code in a way that at deploy time, you stitch it back together. So I think people have to make sure that they're attacking this problem at the right layer and not assuming that just having multiple binaries means you're doing microservices. Right. I think technology can do that to people. It can blind people to the fact that even though they feel like they're solving a problem, they miss out. They miss the fact that they're actually creating more problems than they had before. Yeah. And I'm guilty of this because I lack experience in all the things. So I think a lot of times we get into this rush of getting it done and getting it to production versus sometimes we need to get it done, experiment for a while and say, you know what? That wasn't optimal throw it away and try again based on our learnings or experience. And that's really hard to do when it feels like everything is changing all the time. Yeah. And maybe if you put a lot of work into something, it's like, it's like calling your own baby ugly. You've got, you've got to kind of start over. And that poses a question, you know, is there a case when that is true, right? It's a hard thing to ask yourself, but I think this is where the team can jump in and the peer reviews and also getting advice from outside of your own four walls. Absolutely. Yeah. That's where collaboration can help. And so do you think, again, leads me really nicely to something I wrote down. I wrote so many, I'll be perfectly honest. When, uh, when I had to, when you agreed to, to this podcast, because I'm such a, I'm, I'm kind of a, a, an unheard of podcast. I think you're like the ninth episode I've ever done. I, I was reaching out to the, my community to say, does anyone have a question for you that uh, they would like me to ask on their behalf. I asked, well, you know, Liz Rice, I asked her yesterday what she wanted. I asked said, any previous podcast member. So I have a, a list of here that may not connect in any sensible order. But one of them, yeah, one of them was, um, do you feel that GitHub and open source uh, has fostered a almost default level of collaboration that has led to a an improvement in the quality of software overall? Yeah, I would definitely say so because, you know, there's one thing I remember coming up and buying books and learning about whatever software was available. And for the stuff that wasn't in open source form, maybe at that time I couldn't afford it. I would just read these white papers about how people were using some of these things. Now what we're seeing is maybe a balance where instead of just a white paper, Kubernetes is a great example, right? There's the Borg paper. There's all these papers, the Omega paper about what it's like to build and operate one of these distributed platforms. 
And now we have an open source project. And once I started, you know, contributing to Kubernetes and really studying how it all fits together, I really think that improved my understanding of distributed systems, how they fail, how they work. And now we're starting to share that knowledge much more broadly, right? So now there's people who are running these things in production, gaining the experience that you can only gain when they break and fail. And I think now what people are building is tools on top of that. So now we have a much broader set of people building these tools and having an outlet to share that. So I think that's only going to increase the number of people who can actually have input in how these things will work. And I think once we get the number base where it needs to be, ideally it contributes to the quality, right? And I think there's maybe some concerns about how intentional are these projects. You know, one thing Kubernetes tried to do early on was kind of decide what the core was and to prevent it from just growing out of control, attempting to tackle every problem. And that's where quality can suffer. If you don't put those gates in place, you just start doing everything and you end up not doing anything well. So I think part of that, you have to be a little bit self-policing in a way to say, hey, this is our core specialty. Everything else should be done outside of our platform. And Kubernetes has done a, like a, an outstanding job of managing that kind of growth. What's, what's interesting, I, I think, when projects drift or, or don't manage that, what's, what's fascinating about the, the sort of modern ecosystem is that three more projects will identify that this is what's happening and pop up to replace it in a new and, a, and kind of interesting way. And almost a crowdsourced quality will dictate which one survives. Yeah, there's a lot of that. And, and I think when the Go programming language came out, it seemed to make it easier to build these distributed systems. We saw Docker based on it. We saw a lot of the HashiCorp, almost all the HashiCorp tools, Vault, Terraform, Console, and even Kubernetes itself. They're all written in the Go programming language. And I think there's a reason for that, right? It really tried to make concurrency and parallelism a little bit easier to deal with. The way we deploy our applications in these single statically linked binaries, and it fostered a community of people building these distributed systems that now you can just go and maybe import a library and start from there. Yeah, very cool. So I guess I guess uh, another question I've got here, and it's actually mine. Um, do you think the variety of roles that you've had and the different hats that you've got allows you a, uh, a an improved perspective on dealing with new problem and kind of gives you this ability, as you're doing right now, to try and not predict the future, but I think look to the future and try to prepare for it? Yeah, so I've been around for a little while. Like I was very deep into networking for a little while there, configuration management, uh, running my own small business, interacting with people, managing people. And I think what you start to see is with enough time and enough experience, you start to see the loop kind of repeat itself a little bit. You know, people come out with the thing, people get really excited, the thing goes away, new thing emerges. And I think that's a very healthy part of evolution that we see in technology. But the other thing that I've observed of having the various roles, the various jobs and areas of responsibility is that the fundamentals are largely the same. So when I see a new problem, I ask, do the fundamentals apply? If the answer is yes, then I have a really good starting point that usually gets me about 80% there. And then I look at the implementation and see what the implementation is attempting to do for me. If it's a platform then I ask, is the platform doing something that I don't have to do for myself? It's just like importing some library, right? If I want to do uh, TLS or HTTPS, I'm not going to go and roll my own crypto library. I'm just going to import the right package because the fundamentals are roughly the same. And now I know what to go look for. Very cool. 
So I have a question then going back then to your history. So you you started as a sysadmin, but you were self-taught. You didn't get you didn't go to, I don't know, sysadmin school or do a I guess a computer science degree of some kind. Is that that's correct? Yeah, I hate to think that there was a system administrator school that I missed the opportunity <laughs> to attend. Yeah, I don't. Uh, you're right. I mean, most of my self-education came from just books like Barnes & Noble at the time. I remember buying a book for like 30 bucks. I was like, wow, that's a lot of money for a book. And but I remember it's one of, it was a book maybe on like FreeBSD or something like that. And I really wanted to just go very deep on how to install an operating system you know, how to package an application. And I read that book three or four times, forward and backwards. And that's where I really got the initial set of understanding of how these systems work together. And it really prepared me to jump into the workforce where I think it's just a big ongoing uh, set of education that you gain from experience coupled with just learning from other people. And do you think that has been, I think it's your natural curiosity and and that, sparked a lot of that because i think where where we are at the moment is that there is a debate i mean and i live in the uk so i, I there's a debate about university versus non-university and particularly in the tech sector about whether there is an advantage to establishing a degree or whether or in some cases where you've got kids coming up through uh, junior school or high school as the case may be uh, and they're fantastic coders by the time they're 16 years old and they would rather go into a boot camp or an internship program. I don't know if there's a plus minus on that. I think there's a lot to learn from, you know, in college, maybe there's a bit of balance that could actually happen, right? So I think a lot of times a classical CS degree is going to focus on some more fundamentals of computer science and less about computers. And I think maybe what the market and industry is saying, if you're kind of your goal is to, your goal is to get a job and be productive is that there's going to have to be a little bit more balance, right? You're going to have to combine the theory with the practice. And I think a lot of people are seeking that out because it's a very competitive job market, as you described. If all you have is the theory and someone has been doing this thing for two or three years, they may have an initial advantage over you, especially for those entry-level jobs where someone really wants someone that can come in and execute. Now, I do think some of the classical CS studies and theories, right? I remember reading a lot of these white papers around consensus. And that's something that I don't think I would just arrive on just being self-taught. You know, you can probably think about how to discover those things on your own, but it's really nice to see someone sit down and be patient to really understand the theory and then take the theory and try to apply it to real life. And I think that's just kind of where the combination sits. Cool. So the a question question from Liz was, where do you see the future of thin container OS? So now that we're building layers on top, there's this question of when do we collapse the layers below? Right now in the early days of Kubernetes, you bring your standard operating system, Red Hat, Ubuntu, Debian. These are fantastic operating systems. And they were built for a world where they would package all the software. You would use the native packaging tools like Yum or AppGit and package and install software. And they had all these facilities for allowing you to build anything else you wanted on top. So now containers come along and we say, you know what? Our goal now is to bundle everything that that application needs into the container image. So what we need from the operating system has been shrinking over time. Maybe I don't necessarily need a package manager on the system. And maybe I can adjust and improve my security by saying, since there's nothing I can install on the base OS, kind of like a Chromebook, then maybe the OS can just be read-only. 
and the only thing it needs to ship with are the things necessary to run container images. So now you start to shrink down that OS quite a bit. I don't need FTP running. I don't need a mail server running. I don't need all of these things running on the base OS. Now we're going to push some of that responsibility into the container layer. And at that point, now we have to ask ourselves the other security question. Can two applications share a kernel? And I think that's been a big topic of discussion when it comes to isolation and multi-tenancy. And if there's a bug in the kernel, then a lot of the security parameters implemented by the kernel alone can be compromised. So now we're starting to see a rise into leveraging what's traditionally thought of as virtualization technology just for the process. And what's real interesting there is you end up with tools like Firecracker, where we start to say, let's strip away the whole boot sequence. Let's strip away all the things that we need for a general OS. And let's just build a purpose-built virtualization layer that's specifically for processes. Then you get to something super powerful that looks very familiar to what we're doing with containers today. Excellent. Uh, I have one more question. Unless there's something that you were hoping I would touch on that I didn't. No, I think you covered a lot of ground. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. I love it. Um, and I, I didn't even get to some of the questions that were a bit out there. Uh, and apologies to anybody who sent me a question that I didn't ask. I'm happy to um, ask them. So if you have a few more minutes, I'm happy to cover those. Uh, they might be unique. Okay. No. I'll, all right. I'm going to give you one. What's the best part about being Kelsey Hightower at the moment? Oh, my goodness. Uh, it sounds like you've got, you've got a pretty good thing going. So You know what? I do have to take a moment and appreciate. Like I always had to say when I was younger, like, I'm winning. And it seems like everything that I do, everything that I attempt, I seem to be winning. I try a new keynote style and people like it. I, I put a tweet out that I wanted to do a few podcasts. I was able, I had the pleasure of meeting 20 different hosts on 20 different podcasts and getting those recorded. I seem to be winning. So right now I kind of feel that the community has accepted me as I am. I don't have to pretend to be someone else. So I get to just be me. And to me, that just feels the best. So right now in my career, I don't have to try to figure out how to be the best programmer, how to be the best system administrator. I get to just be Kelsey and people are inviting Kelsey to be involved in their projects. And I think that's the very best part about being me right now. Yeah, it must be a bit. I think it must be a little bit mind-blowing in a, in a way when you sort of are mindful of that to, to think of the influence you actually have. Actually, it just keeps me responsible. You know, now that mm-hmm. I, I know if I say a certain thing, it can ruffle some feathers. I try to always be honest, but sometimes there's just unnecessary commentary. Like if I really don't like something, I can now ask myself, does it matter so much that I have to make a bunch of noise about the fact that I don't like it? And especially if no one asked me my opinion on it. So now I can kind of, I might reserve that judgment in public. So I think now it's just, and I'm a very humble person, right? I'm a minimalist. I kind of appreciate the things around me. And I also appreciate other people. And I think it just gives me this natural humbleness to not let this go to my head, right? I just appreciate the fact that I have something that a lot of people don't have, this freedom to be myself. So I I have to, you know, my ongoing appreciation of that is just uh, respecting that that privilege. I think that's a great way to end. I think you've established a, uh, whether a conscious or unconscious goal of a lot of people that might be listening. And that is principally so that they could just be themselves and be accepted. Excellent. Thank you, Kelsey, for being on this podcast. It's been, uh, it's been a pleasure. It's been an honor and it's been educational.
Awesome. I, I really appreciate it. I enjoyed it. I love the pacing too. So it felt really nice. Very cool. Oh, nice. Yeah. Considering I'm last, uh, you've certainly got a, a bit of a background uh, within which to, to assess that. Very cool. All right. Well, I hope we get to meet face to face at some point at some cube related event or otherwise. That would be, uh, that would be awesome. Oh, yeah. If you see me somewhere, please wave me down and I'll try to remember to do the same. And that is another episode of Beer Sec Ops. Beer Sec Ops is powered by Aqua Security and assisted immensely by Shirley Fried and edited by Taylor Sattler. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.